This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. In neurodegenerative diseases like ALS, Cells in the brain suffer a decline in their ability to produce energy. These impairments help to drive the progression of these diseases. Clean nanomedicine is developing a nanocrystal suspension of gold atoms that are small enough to enter mitochondria, the cellular organelles that power activity, to increase two critical energy metabolites to fuel cellular function and counter the disease. The company believes this has the potential to provide functional changes to people with ALS and other neurodegenerative conditions. We spoke to Rob Etherington, president and CEO of Clean Nanomedicine, about ALS, the role that the compromised ability of cells to produce energy play in the disorder, and why the company believes its gold nanocrystal therapy has the potential to improve function in people with a condition. Rob, thanks for joining us. Danny, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We're going to talk about clean nanomedicine, nanotherapeutics, and your lead therapy designed to treat ALS and other neurodegenerative diseases. Let's start with ALS. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it? ALS, or Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis is a progressive neurodegenerative disease that's really affecting the way the nerve cells in our bodies talk to our brain and spinal cord. Uh, Amyotrophic basically effectively is a Greek word. That means the muscle doesn't get nourishment. Um, And when a muscle doesn't get nourishment and can't actually talk to the muscle from the brain, then we have a series of degeneration that occurs and patients lose the ability to walk and talk and move and chew and swallow and even breathe. A remarkably devastating condition, as you and I can appreciate, because we count on our very life, our ability to move and walk and talk and eat and chew and breathe. And patients very tragically die within three to five years. Thankfully, we're in the middle of a renaissance of drug discovery in ALS. Uh, How does the condition manifest itself and progress? There's two types of ALS. Patients either can have uh, a brainstem onset, which would manifest in their inability to start forming words or to talk or to chew or swallow. In other words, kind of a neck up compromise. Or patients could have a limb onset disease, which manifests in the ability of the body to talk to the muscles of the hands, the arms, the legs. So I might be walking or, or, or using my hands in a certain manner that I've come accustomed to for decades and all of a sudden, I start losing that ability. You mentioned 
patients generally have a prognosis of, of living three to five years after diagnosis. You mentioned also that we're in this renaissance. We, we've had certainly uh, an important new ALS drug approved this year. Is there any indication that that prognosis is changing for patients today? I think it is, actually. So, so Lou Gehrig was first diagnosed in the 30s when he was in his 30s. So this is the 1930s when he was in his 30s. And Lou Gehrig famously gave his, disease, his name to this disease. Many um, people of, of many generations have called ALS Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, we call it a little bit less that now. But the point I'm getting at is for decades, for, for 50, 60 years, there was no drug. Then there was a drug called Riliazole approved in the 80s, and then there was another drug um, approved in the last 20 years uh, called Adaravone. And then only just recently, uh, actually six weeks ago, roughly, a new drug was approved in the United States and Canada. So we have now three drugs that patients could be prescribed. All three of them work in different ways, but there are multiple drugs in, in, in presently in clinical studies that are working their way down different um, paths, mechanisms, and timelines to help the patients. You're working to develop treatments for a number of neurodegenerative diseases. Why start with ALS as your lead indication? What our drug does called CNMA-8, it it, it's a new pioneering drug class called nanotherapeutics. And we're actually using uh, the asset gold to be the active ingredient in our CNMA-8. And why that is relevant, because at nanoscale, which is to say for your listeners, super small, our drug is able to target energy metabolism. And energy metabolism is in fact the root problem in ALS. Uh, certainly one of the big challenges in this disease is that the neurons that, that talk to our muscles require a fair amount of energy. And our drug, CNMA-8, improves cellular energy production and its utilization. So ALS, to your question, was the perfect starting point. Clean believes that that's a commonality between several neurodegenerative conditions, including not only ALS, but Parkinson's and MS. What happens within the cell that renders its energy-producing capabilities less than full? You are exactly correct in that neurodegenerative diseases, they all share a common mechanism, and that is a decline in your brain and my brain's ability to produce energy. Now, our brains is a relatively small percentage of our body weight. In fact, only kind of 3 to 5%, yet our brain consumes more than a quarter of the energy that you and I require every day to basically undertake all these aspects of living that we count on. Our ability to move and walk and chew and eat and swallow, as I've mentioned, is driven by the brain coordinating this massive series of tasks. And so, yes, um, many neuronal populations are vulnerable to energetic failure. And so Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, ALS, and I could continue, there's many, where energetic impairments in the central nervous system in our brain is both predisposing and driving progression in these diseases. And this is a big challenge because we're living longer. So that's great that we're living longer. But as we're living longer, our brain energy potential is declining with normal aging. And if we couple this, this decline with normal aging with one of these neurodegenerative diseases, which happens for a whole host of reasons, then things start to go very complicated very fast. 
what is CNM AU8 actually doing once it's delivered into the body? CNM AU8 is a nanocrystal suspension of gold atoms. So when I say atoms, that is, of course, remarkably small. These crystals are so small that they can enter the mitochondria. And the mitochondria are basically the, the engines of the way our, our neurons and our brain works. And so what's happening is mechanistically is a word we use in pharmaceuticals is how the drug is working mechanistically. It's increasing uh, two key um, energy metabolites called nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, very technical, and adenosine triphosphate, very technical. Said less technically, these two are amongst the, 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 the energy or the gas that the engines of our body, that is to say, in this case, the central nervous system, is using to drive its function. So our drug is really increasing energy production and its utilization mechanistically by increasing the amount of gas or energy on hand for the central nervous system to use. The belief is that this would not only be slowing the progression of the disease, but actually disease modifying, is that correct? Functional change is a good way to express this. We want to improve function. In fact, um, our clinical studies are designed with function in mind. Um, and by function, again, I'm using purposely and, and, and repetitively our abilities to move and walk and talk and eat and chew and breathe, because these are functions. These are functions that you and I count upon. And that's what we've designed our clinical studies to assess. So yes. And is, is this whole approach of dealing with the energy production of the cell validated in, in these diseases? It's novel for clean. Indeed, nobody else is really approaching this in the exact same way that we are, but in large measure because their drugs don't have the ability to pursue energy um, improvement uh, to the degree that we have. So let's just uh, maybe give you three headlines. So about 14 months ago, we established brain target engagement and, and showed that we could improve energy by patients drinking our drug orally and then what we saw with their energy improvement in their brains. We showed that statistically significant in a phase two study. And then uh, a, about a year ago, we had our first phase two data roll out in ALS. And that data showed that we demonstrated a survival benefit that was statistically significant. And then only a couple months ago, we released MS data that showed that we saw neurological improvements in people with stable relapsing MS. And the way we saw that benefit was in the way they, in the way they saw their vision, the way they, their, their eye worked. What's known about the safety and efficacy of CNM AU8 from studies that have been done to date? So we have uh, a, more than 400 years of subject exposure without any identified safety signals across all three of these diseases, ALS, MS, and Parkinson's. In other words, we've concluded now uh, four uh, phase two studies, and not only did our animal work result in no adverse effect level. So that's important to start these studies, which we had to prove before we started them. But since then, with all this uh, uh, people exposure, the, the 400 years collectively of patients in clinical studies that took our drug, people struggling with these diseases, we don't have yet a single serious adverse event that has been related to CNMAU8 that's been considered severe life-threatening or resulting in death. In other words, we have a very solid safety profile for which we are grateful. I wanted to ask you about one of the studies you did, the, the Rescue ALS clinical trial. This was 
reported on about a year ago, and it failed to meet its primary endpoint. This involved the Munich biomarker. Can you explain what the Munich biomarker is and why the study failed to meet its endpoint? Yes, certainly. So Munich stands for Motor Unit Index. So that's an abbreviation, Munich's Motor Unit Index. And it is the measure of function, in our case, uh, electrophysiological function of the um, way the brain is able to talk to the muscles of the arm, hand, and leg. Uh, quite precisely, we measured the ability of the arm and the biceps, the ability of the hand and two muscles called the APB and the ADM, and the tibialis anterior in the leg. And we put probes, electrical probes, and the doctor asks the, the, the person struggling with ALS to flex those respective muscles. And we measure that flex with the probe. Now, we looked at both types of patients. We looked at uh, bulbar onset patients that I referenced earlier, those patients that have compromise in, in their neck and above. And we looked at limb onset patients, the patients that have spinal cord compromise. And we collected all of the data for both types of patients. And what we learned is in early disease, and these were early ALS patients, they'd been diagnosed only recently, uh, within four months, um, that we did not see progression for the brain stem onset patients into the muscles of their hands, arms, and legs. So we missed the primary endpoint for that reason. If we looked only at the limb patients, we saw a near statistical achievement. Uh, when I say near, um, our p-value there was PO7. So we missed statistic classical statistical significance by only 0.02. So it gets a little bit muddled here, what I'm saying. Um, but just to make it clear, if we'd have looked only at limb onset patients, it's likely that we would have seen a statistical significance. We didn't, however, because we looked at both types of patients. But what we did see is actually probably... Uh, very, very critical, and it's it's caused King Clean to have good faith in CNMA-08 and pursue because we saw improved patient function, we saw improved quality of life, we saw improved ALS disease progression, and most importantly, as we continue to evaluate these patients, we saw that CNMA-08 demonstrated a significant impact on long-term survival because the patients on active drug compared to placebo are not passing away at the same rate. It would seem to me there are lessons here, both on clinical trial design and patient selection. Why would you enroll patients who didn't have limb involvement in a study that used Munich's biomarker as an endpoint? That is the perfect um, question that we ourselves have armchair quarterbacked here at CLEAN. Um, it was presumed by us and the scientific advisors that uh, Bulbar, see, everybody progresses eventually to both. Limb onset patients end up having, having a compromise in the way they speak and breathe and swallow. And patients that start with talking compromise end up having limb compromise eventually. In other words, both type of patients translate eventually to compromise across the whole body on balance. Um, so now what we've learned is that uh, nobody will ever do a study using Munich's um, in bulbar onset patients. It, it would, we've now learned scientifically that was a mistake. Um, and so to answer your question, we wouldn't do it again. Um, that's the advantage of science is we've learned that in early disease, you need to focus on just limb onset patients only. At the same time, are you able to still follow those patients and see if they don't progress as would be expected? 
Yes, and that is actually a very important point. So um, the, our exploratory uh, endpoints proved that it was actually useful that we looked at both types of patients because in both types of patients, collectively, taken together, in other words, we understood that we have a survival benefit. Taken together, we understood that we have an ability to um, improve disease progression. That is, patients on placebo, regardless of whether they were limb or bulbar, still progressed aggressively towards either death or the need for full-time breathing support or gastrostomy tube because they could no longer eat or swallow. And, and our CNMA-8 patients didn't progress at near the same rate. In fact, the p-value there was PO1, um, which basically translates that um, roughly four-fifths of our CNMA-8 patients were able to not progress into this need for gastrostomy tube, this need for a tracheostomy. So, so even though the primary endpoint was compromised by looking at both types of patients, the exploratory endpoint and the survival benefit has been of value because we looked at both bulbar and limb onset patients. What's the development path forward? Well, so the next study that immediately translated from rescue was the Healy study, the Harvard Healy study. And this study just read out last month. And in that respect, let's just explain what Healy is for a minute. This is the most important ALS uh, study probably ever attempted. Uh, multiple drugs are being compared to each other in this program. Uh, Clean was one of the first drugs chosen. There was four drugs chosen for the first regimens. Um, all of these patients are matched effectively. It's 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 a it's a program where all of the same clinical endpoints are evaluated. Patients are randomized within a platform. It's a page that has been borrowed from the cancer uh, pharmaceutical drug research program that enables multiple drugs to be evaluated at, at the same time in effectively the same manner. And it's designed to accelerate drug development for ALS. Now, CNMA-8 in regimen C, we failed the primary endpoint here, as well as did, incidentally, the other two regimens that have been announced thus far, regimen A and B. But the difference with CNMA-8 is that we saw a survival benefit again. So we saw a survival signal, signal where 90% decreased risk of death occurred for our 30 milligram dose, which is, by the way, the same dose used in the rescue study we just were referencing. So the advantage that we have is that we now have two studies that show that there is a survival benefit for patients on CNMA-08 compared to placebo. And we are evaluating the patients that continue on active drug in both programs to see if the agency taken into account our safety, which again, as I mentioned earlier, is pretty solid, um, will tell us what they'd like to do with next steps. Um, the survival benefit that Amelix saw is in large measure what, what drove the approval of Amelix's asset. Uh, and so we, want, we plan to talk to the agency, the FDA, in 2023. Um, to basically work with them to review in the totality the, the survival benefit that we're seeing with our drug across two studies and to see if the agency concurs that that is a worthy um, conversation to have. 
There are many other diseases where there's mitochondrial implication. The the cells lose their ability to produce the energy that they should. Is there any reason to believe that your therapy might have broader application? Well, the visionary data that we released from our phase two multiple sclerosis study in August teaches us that it does indeed have broader application. So let's just talk about that study for just a minute. So in that case, uh, we used, or rather we enrolled uh, people struggling with, with MS. Though they were stable because their MS drug effectively tamped down their body's immune response, leading to no longer an attack on their nerves, they still were functionally compromised. Uh, and what we did is we evaluated their vision. We evaluated their fine motor control with their fingers and hand. We evaluated their cognitive thinking ability, and we evaluated their walk test, how well they could walk unassisted down a hallway under a stopwatch. And in those cases, the visionary study, we reported out that we demonstrated a global neurological improvement in these stable patients, despite the fact that they were already on a disease-modifying therapy. In other words, CLEAN's CNMA-8 was able to improve their low contrast letter acuity, which is a, a medical term, which basically means using a classical eye chart, um, we were able to improve their ability to see under certain light conditions. The other thing we were able to, that was the primary endpoint, um, is under the secondary endpoint, we were able to improve their modified MS functional composite scale, which is a combined endpoint looking at the way they saw, thought, moved, and walked. And so, that was pretty exciting to clean because nobody's ever shown functional improvement on top of standard of care MS drugs. And if, if in a phase three study that is further demonstrated, that is we can improve global function of the way they move or walk or think, then that is the market need in multiple sclerosis. It's been a difficult time to be a public biotech. You've got an $80 million market cap and are trading near a 52-week low, about 80% below your 52-week high. What's the conversation like with investors these days? Indeed, the small and mid-cap biotech companies have been under tremendous pressure in the markets. Um, there are so many companies trading below their enterprise value, which is to say that their cash on hand is actually more than their market cap. Uh, that is not Clean's uh, scenario, thankfully, but we've still nonetheless seen a remarkable uh, fall in our market cap over this last year. Uh, investors, uh, they're worried about, I think, the biotech market generally, and we haven't seen uh, yet a dam breaking with respect to M&A uh, from, you know, the, the big pharma companies are sitting on billions and billions and billions that they've not yet spent to in, in, increase their pipelines. Um, so we expect that to happen at some point. It hasn't happened yet. Once it does happen, I think we'll see um, investor sentiment uh, be more enthusiastic about the biotech market. Um, clean, though, we're focused on the primary uh, endpoints of the data. So coming in, 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 the coming, in the coming months, we are going to see continued uh, survival data from um, our patients as we receive more data flow from the Healy-Harvard study and more data flow from the visionary MS study. We're continuing to follow patients and, and, and assessing their function and assessing their ability to live or die. And as that data matures, we plan to uh, build 
two things, um, a conversation with the FDA, as I mentioned earlier, and phase three studies that will um, be able to take us down a regulatory pathway asking for, if positive, uh, commercial approval. And is being a public company today more of a hindrance than a help? It's certainly difficult to be careful by keeping one eye on the public stock price and the pressure that one is there under because of that, and, and also do the job at hand, which is to help the patients improve, um, or rather get involved in your clinical studies so you can see as to whether or not they improve. Um, that is certainly challenging. Um, the advantage of, 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 of the public markets historically is that capital raising is possible. That's challenged now. And so, um, you know, the answer is nuanced, I guess, purposely. Uh, we're grateful that Clean came public. Um, investors were, were thankful when we did so. The last year has been remarkably challenging for all concerned. But do I expect the biotech markets to uh, revert back and start um, having up cycles? I do. How far will existing cash take you? And what is the plan for raising additional capital? So as of September 30th, the last time we announced um, our cash on hand, we had $32 million. Uh, that capital gets us through till uh, basically the, the end of the second quarter next year. So not a long runway, but enough of a runway to understand the totality of our, our survival signal to see our, our data from our visionary study for another year of patients that have been followed in open label. And so these are catalysts that taken together with biomarker data that we're expecting uh, could lead to very uh, encouraging regulatory conversations. Indeed, just as an aside, um, uh, there are there's one drug right now in front of the agency awaiting an agency decision in the first quarter of, of next year um, for whether or not they'll be commercially approved. Well, that drug filed an NDA. They missed their primary endpoint as well. But their subgroup analyses and their biomarker data was compelling sufficiently that the agency said, let's talk about you in an advisory committee meeting. Uh, we also saw that the recently approved Amelix drug was able really to turn to their approval because of leaning into their survival data they saw released this last summer. So in Clean's case, um, we ex are expecting the catalyst data to arrive, including our biomarker and increased survival data over the coming months. Rob Etherington, CEO of Clean Nanomedicine. Rob, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.